Investigators in California say the person suspected of killing 10 people in a shooting at a dance club killed himself as officers closed in on him. It's Monday, January 23rd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, President Biden is expected to name Jeff Zients as his new chief of staff. Democrats hope he'll help end a budget standoff with Republicans. With a calm, cool, and collective chief of staff like Jeff, it will show how clear it is that they're not ready to govern. But he'll have to deal with the classified documents found in the president's home in Delaware. Also this hour, more Massachusetts communities are switching to electric school buses, and kids are noticing the difference. It's awesome. It's not noisy. Yeah, well, some of the kids are a bit loud. Snow today up to four inches in Boston and Worcester in the 30s. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. California authorities are trying to find the reason why a gunman opened fire at a dance venue late Saturday night in Monterey Park. It's popular with older Asian Americans who were celebrating the Lunar New Year. NPR's Nathan Rod explains what authorities have learned. The gunman, who authorities have identified as a 72-year-old Asian man, uh, walked into the dance hall at around 10.20 p.m. local time, opened fire on the crowd, uh, killing 10 people, injuring 10 more. He then went to another dance hall in Alhambra, which is just north of Monterey Park. And authorities say he uh, was disarmed there by two patrons um, and then fled. NPR's Nathan Rott reporting. California authorities then traced the man the next day to a white van about 30 minutes away. As officers closed in, the man apparently shot himself to death. Following the shooting in California, cities across the United States are tightening security around Lunar New Year celebrations. From member station WBUR in Boston, Walter Wuthman reports a Lunar New Year celebration in Lowell, Massachusetts, drew extra police and security. Four costumed lion dancers performed in front of Lowell City Hall with police motorcycles sealing the perimeter. Organizer Cameron Sayavong says he was devastated by the news from Monterey Park. You know, everybody's just coming together to unite and experience the new year and bring in New Year luck. And that kind of happened. I don't know. I don't have no words to say. But Sayavong says they never considered canceling. It's very important to us to come out and come together, represent still that we are here to unite as one as a community. More Lunar New Year celebrations will be held across the country in the coming days. For NPR News, I'm Walter Wuthman in Boston. Poland has said it may send German-made leopard tanks to Ukraine without getting Germany's authorization. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports Germany's foreign minister told French television that her country would not stand in Poland's way. Appearing on French news channel LCI, German Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock told the interviewer that if Poland sent the tanks without Germany's approval, we would not oppose it. Speaking in German with a French interpreter talking over her, Baerbock described being on the front recently and seeing how Ukrainians had 45 seconds to seek shelter from incoming missiles. These tanks are needed, she said. Baerbach was in Paris with members of the German government, including Chancellor Olaf Scholz, marking the 60th anniversary of post-war Franco-German cooperation. The interviewer repeated his question at the end to make sure he had heard right. Yes, said Baerbach, you understood me perfectly. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. 
You're listening to NPR. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Boston City officials are sharing their support for the community in Monterey Park, California, after this weekend's shooting. Mayor Michelle Wu and the Boston City Council say they're upset by the shooting and are calling on national leaders to take action. They say Boston will send support to Monterey Park as it hosts its Lunar New Year celebrations this week. In-person or retail sports betting will begin next week in Massachusetts. WBUR Sharon Brody reports that the State Gaming Commission will spend the next few days preparing for the launch. Gamblers will be able to place bets on professional or college games at the state's three casinos starting next Tuesday, January 31st. Betting online is expected to begin in March. The Gaming Commission holds a roundtable discussion today featuring representatives from players associations for the NFL, the NBA, the NHL, Major League Baseball, and Major League Soccer. Topics include regulations protecting athlete and family safety and collective bargaining agreements. Tomorrow, commissioners hold a public hearing to accept input on sports gambling regulations, including rules related to preventing minors from placing bets. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Sharon Brody. The military analyst who leaked the so-called Pentagon Papers now has an honorary degree from UMass Amherst. Daniel Ellsberg was awarded the degree over the weekend for what the university calls a lifetime of truth-telling. Ellsberg leaked the papers to the New York Times in 1971. They exposed years of lies the Pentagon told Americans during the Vietnam War. UMass Amherst has housed an archive of documents related to Ellsberg's life and trial since 2019. Provincetown is offering a free training today on Narcan. Narcan is an opioid blocker that immediately reverses an overdose. Attendees will learn how to identify an overdose and administer Narcan. Training organizer Dan Gates says community initiatives like this can be life-saving for opioid users. A lot of people who are experiencing the stigma associated with um, opioid drug use are marginalized, so they are no longer accessing the services they most need. And so we act as a first step and a bridge back to those services. Participants will get two free doses of Narcan after the training. Narcan is also available in pharmacies across the state and does not require a prescription. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bernadine Sun Megason and Tim O'Sullivan with Compass New England, helping clients navigate the evolving Massachusetts real estate market. More at homesbybernadine.com. The Bruins shut out the San Jose Sharks 4-0 yesterday at the Garden. The Bees will visit the Montreal Canadiens tomorrow. Tonight, the Celtics will visit the Orlando Magic. Rain will change over to snow by about mid-afternoon today. The National Weather Service predicts 3 to 4 inches in Boston and Worcester, up to 6 inches along the New Hampshire border, less as you head south. High today in the 30s. Snow ends overnight tonight. The low will be in the 20s. Clouds give way to sun tomorrow. It'll be near 40. Right now it's 36 degrees in Boston at 707. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the William T. Grant Foundation, working to harness the power of research to make a difference in the lives of children, teens, and young adults for more than 80 years. Learn more at wtgrantfdn.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. One of President Biden's closest advisors is stepping back. Ron Klain has been a Biden strategist for many years. He's expected to leave his job as chief of staff next month, 
although the exact timing isn't certain. NPR has confirmed the president has selected a replacement, Jeff Science, the former COVID response coordinator. The many challenges that Zions will face include an investigation of the president's handling of classified documents. The FBI searched Biden's Delaware home on Friday. NPR's Tamara Keith is here to talk about all this. Hi, Tam. Good morning. So let's start with the documents. Didn't the president's lawyers say they'd already found everything? Oh, indeed they had. Mm. But on Friday, the FBI went to Wilmington for this truly extraordinary search of a sitting president's home. The president wasn't there, but his lawyers were, and they said that they kept the search quiet as it was happening at the request of the Justice Department. And according to Biden's team, the FBI did find additional items with classified markings dating back as far as his time in the Senate. So any hope in the White House of this issue quickly fading, it's back front and center with more documents being found. So Jeff Zients is expected to replace Ron Klain as chief of staff sometime soon. Why him? Why now? You know, being White House chief of staff is a meat grinder of a job, and Klain helped usher through a surprising number of legislative accomplishments in these first two years. And then he saw Biden through the midterms. People who know him say he is exhausted. And also, this is a new phase of the Biden presidency that's starting. Biden is likely launching a reelection campaign soon and will be dealing with both these congressional investigations that we're expecting, as well as this special counsel investigation related to classified documents. As far as Zients, he has known Biden a long time. He was on the transition team, and then he took on this Herculean task of getting hundreds of millions of COVID vaccine doses into the arms of Americans in the early days of the administration. Dr. Anthony Fauci worked with him closely, and he said that in addition to being a very good manager, Zients can also be an effective gatekeeper, which is a key part of the job. Fundamentally, he's a really good guy and a very likable guy. But when he has to say no, he says no in a non-confrontative way, but no is no. (laughs) So as you said, there are investigations, political battles ahead. Do you have a sense of his possible approach there? He was a budget director under President Obama and has strong business connections. And that could help with the specter of a high-stakes political fight over the debt ceiling coming up. I spoke to Cedric Richmond, who is a senior advisor now at the DNC. The Hill Republicans are going to overplay their hand. And with a calm, cool, and collective chief of staff like Jeff, it will show how clear it is that they're not ready to govern and that they feed off of chaos. That is certainly the White House plan for this. Mm. Uh, you know, in the Obama years, Zients was known as Mr. Fix-It for rescuing healthcare.gov after a catastrophic rollout. So he is no stranger to crisis. But based on the conversations I had over the weekend with half a dozen people in the White House orbit, I have to say that the thing that they kept coming back to was this idea of his ability to implement. And there are three sprawling pieces of legislation passed over the last two years involving a lot of government spending and they need to be implemented. NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith. Thank you so much, Tam. You're welcome. We have Richard Painter back on the program to discuss the latest classified documents found at Biden's home. He was the top White House ethics official in the administration of former President George W. Bush, and he ran as a Democrat last year in a U.S. House race in Minnesota. Good morning. Well, good morning. So how problematic is the drip-drip nature of these revelations for the Biden White House? 
Well, it would have been better if all this had come out at the same time, if as soon as they had discovered the um, uh, documents, the classified documents at the center operated by the University of Pennsylvania, uh, the Justice Department, the FBI, just done a complete search of those premises and the president's homes uh, and uh, found everything uh, and then uh, had made this public. Uh, but uh, this is the way it's been handled uh, thus far. I think the most important thing is to protect our national security and find out who has had access to these premises where documents were stored. Quite an unusual move for the FBI to search a sitting president's home. What did you make of that? I think that's the appropriate thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was consensual. It was not where they didn't need to go get a warrant. Uh, this is very different than the situation we have with former President Trump, who uh, refused to give documents back when asked for them. Uh, and uh, this is a situation where the FBI could conduct the search with consent and uh, find uh, what was there. And then we want to figure out who uh, might potentially have had access to the documents. Now, the last time we spoke, you talked about how this appeared to be not criminal, but a seriously sloppy handling of classified material. Do you still believe that's the case? Uh, yes, uh, I, I believe there was uh, sloppiness by the staff members who packed these boxes up um, at the vice president's house. And now there may have been some at the Senate when he was in, when the, uh, he was in the United States Senate. Uh, and then at the other end, someone should have gone through the boxes to see if there was classified material in there or if there was yeah. anything else that shouldn't have been removed. Now, classified documents have distinctive marks on them. How do they get missed like this? They do, uh, and people should be a lot more careful. Um, But we've had this before. Uh, My friend Norman Eisen, who's the former ethics advisor for President Obama, co-authored an excellent piece in Just Security, a a, a blog on uh, how this was quite similar to uh, what happened with Alberto Gonzalez, who was the uh, White House counsel and then attorney general under President Bush, left the White House a month or so before I arrived. And Mm. uh, he took some classified documents inadvertently, um, also, there's some handwritten notes. Uh, it's quite similar to the uh, Biden situation. And no criminal charges were brought, but it, but it was sloppiness. And uh, we need to make sure that this kind of thing does not happen uh, again. Now, President Biden campaigned on being more responsible, less scandal prone than Trump. How does this affect the public's trust in the president? Well, I, I think they still this is an enormous improvement over what we saw in the in the Trump administration. Uh, but of course, that's not the norm. I, I would hope, uh, with respect to ethics uh, and the uh, national security matters, and I, I do think the White House needs to take this seriously and uh, fully cooperate, uh, disclose everything they know about who had access to the premises and the Biden um, uh, houses, and then. There are more uh, strongly urged the University of Pennsylvania uh, to uh, disclose everyone who had access to the uh, Biden Center in Washington, D.C., as well as donors to the university, not to the center, and some tens of millions from, from China and all the other information that the U.S. Congress wants. I mean, we need full disclosure. That's the best way to handle these types of scandals. Get all the information out as quickly as possible. Be honest and cooperate with the investigations. Richard Painter is a former chief White House ethics lawyer under George W. Bush. Thank you so much. Thank you. Some other news now. Police want to know what motivated a gunman to open fire on a dance hall near Los Angeles during the Lunar New Year weekend. 10 people died, 10 were injured. The suspect was a 72-year-old man who later killed himself. 
Josie Wong of our member station KPCC has been talking with people in the community where it happened. Monterey Park has one of the largest Lunar New Year festivals anywhere in the country. But jubilation turned to fear as news broke of a mass shooting at the Star Dance Studio, a fixture in the neighborhood, especially for older immigrants learning to cha-cha or to waltz. Locals woke Sunday to the sight of police barricades and helicopters circling above. Hong Liu learned that a manhunt was underway as she went downtown to shop for groceries. She said she was going home right away because it was too scary. She said Monterey Park is a safe city where you could never imagine something like this happening. The sense of security that Monterey Park offers is a big reason why so many immigrants move here. The city, which is two-thirds Asian, has been called the first suburban Chinatown. Also, Little Taipei and the Chinese Beverly Hills. Restaurants and shops here draw Asians from across L.A., but a pall had fallen over what would normally be a bustling weekend. June Tsai and her husband were in Monterey Park to look at a used car. She says any interest in marking the new year disappeared after the shooting. Their hearts just weren't in it. Out of caution, the city had canceled the second day of the Lunar New Year Festival. Officials initially worried that anti-Asian hate was a possible motive given a surge in such attacks during the pandemic. Tensions remained high until early evening. That's when police identified the suspect. L.A. County Sheriff Robert Luna said the suspect's relationship to the victims is not known, but that he could have claimed more lives. Luna said the suspect went to a second dance studio in the neighboring city of Alhambra. Two brave community members decided they were going to jump into action and disarm him, and the suspect ran away. That firearm, Luna said, was a semi-automatic assault pistol with an extended magazine attached, illegal to own in California. The suspect's van was spotted Sunday morning and pulled over by police in Torrance, a city 30 miles south of Monterey Park. Police say he shot himself as officers approached his van. Many questions remain unanswered. What was the motive for this shooter? Did he have a mental illness? Democratic Congressmember Judy Chu represents Monterey Park. She used to be its mayor. She acknowledged those who had worried about their safety during the manhunt, and she offered reassurance. Feel safe. You are no longer in danger because this shooter is gone. But June Nachalai couldn't help but still feel unsettled. The Thai Chinese esthetician immigrated to the U.S. 25 years ago. When I first came here, I told myself this is a great place to live. But the more I live longer, I don't feel safe like before. She said she was avoiding driving near the crime scene because she got emotional thinking about the 10 victims, how they died, who they were. Police say their names will be released once their families have been notified. For NPR News, I'm Josie Huang in Monterey Park. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, the IRS begins accepting 2022 tax returns today. Some taxpayers might receive smaller refunds as many pandemic-related breaks are no longer available. And a new preliminary study seems to suggest that our smartphones could help us predict when we're most vulnerable to getting sick. It's 719. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center, where everyone on your team specializes in your type of cancer. Learn more at DanaFarberBrigham.org. I'm Jane Clayson, an earth scientist at the Federal Lab in Tennessee, says she was fired after speaking out about climate change. It turns out many scientists feel stifled when it comes to telling the truth about the planet in crisis. The severity and the urgency of the climate crisis, that message isn't really making it out there, at least not to the extent that we think it needs to be. Next time on Here and Now, today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Rain this morning becomes snow this afternoon. Expect as much as four inches around Boston and Worcester. Farther north near New Hampshire, up to six inches. We'll have high temperatures in the mid-30s. It might also be windy. The snow continues into the evening, otherwise cloudy tonight with a low in the mid-20s. Tomorrow starts mostly cloudy, then gradually clears for a sunny day with a high near 40. It's 36 degrees in Boston at 720. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks NyQuil Severe, a nighttime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at Vicks.com. And from the Lummelson Foundation, dedicated to inspiring and enabling the next generation of inventors to improve lives around the world. More information is available at Lemelson.org. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at aecf.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Falden. Your tax refund could be smaller this year. To find out why, we spoke with Jan Lewis. She's a certified public accountant in Mississippi. The last couple of years, because of COVID relief, additional credits, stimulus payments, things like that, that resulted in more credits on tax returns, therefore bigger refunds because of those COVID programs. Most all, if not all, of those additional COVID relief credits are now gone. The IRS starts accepting 2022 tax returns today. It might hurt that you're used to getting a $1,200 refund and you only get a $200 refund. But is that an opportunity for all of us to try to understand what a tax refund is, is where I have paid in more tax than what I owe? As you get ready to file your tax return, Lewis has some advice. Regardless of whether you have a big refund or not, file electronically. Filing by paper slows down the process. And of course, it would be nice to get your refund faster. Use direct deposit because your refund will come quicker. Uh, I think that's good advice for everyone. And Lewis recommends filing early. Let's say you aren't getting as big a refund or, heaven forbid, let's say you owe money. The sooner you get that calculated, the tax isn't owed till April 18th. But just knowing and then being able to plan for it over the next you know, couple of months is better than finding that out on April the 13th. And if you need to ask for an extension, those requests are due by April 18th, too. Do 
Do you ever wonder why some people get sick and others seem almost immune? Evidence going back decades has shown that people who are stressed or fatigued are more likely to catch a cold. Now a study finds that your performance on quick brain quizzes may help to predict how vulnerable you are to getting sick from a virus. NPR's Allison Aubrey reports. Our healthcare system tends to separate mental health and physical health, but of course they're inextricably linked. Being stressed out can mess with our immune systems, and researchers have come up with clever ways to study this. For instance, in one study, scientists exposed hundreds of healthy people by injecting a common cold virus into their noses. Then they waited to see who got sick. It turned out the people who had high levels of stress were more than twice as likely to catch a cold compared to people with low stress. Morali Doriswamy is a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Duke University School of Medicine. It's well known that if you're under periods of intense stress, you're more likely, more susceptible to catching viral infections. It's also known that a lack of sleep and a lack of physical activity can make us vulnerable to infection too. Now, Professor Doriswamy and colleagues have set out to determine whether changes in a person's cognitive performance, such as our ability to stay focused, problem solve, and think quickly, may also signal vulnerability. To figure this out, they recruited healthy people who agreed to have a virus put up their noses and also take brain quizzes multiple times a day for several days. One game was kind of like a timed crossword puzzle. Another quiz scrambled numbers and letters. They're all time tests. So reaction time, just how quickly can you press a button to solve something? The participants' speed and accuracy was used to gauge their mental sharpness. In addition, the severity of their colds was measured by how much virus they shed. We were able to explicitly quantify how many millions of particles of virus they were actually shedding from their body at each time point. When all was said and done, there was a wide range of performance on the cognitive test, says co-author Alfred Hero, a professor of biomedical engineering at the University of Michigan. Some subjects were very consistent. And on the other extreme, we had subjects who might go from doing quite well in the morning to doing very, very poorly later on in the day. And it turned out people who seesawed between good and bad performance were more likely to get sicker with more severe symptoms. Here's Morali Duraswamy again. What we found was that the people who showed high variability also had greater shedding and greater severity of symptoms. It's not clear why the variability in performance on tests would be predictive. Physician Ron Turner, a longtime common cold and immunity researcher at the University of Virginia, says his hunch is that this is a marker for other things happening in a person's life. It's very likely, in my opinion, that the variability in cognitive function is a stand-in or an association with other things, whether that's stress or whether that's lack of sleep. Which takes us back to where we started. Both are known risk factors. So perhaps subtle changes in cognitive performance could serve as a broader catch-all to predict vulnerability before we're even aware of it. Of course, in real life, you can't ask people to do a bunch of brain games all day, but there is a more passive way to measure cognitive changes. And Alfred Hero says our smartphones and laptops can already capture metrics that are reflective of reaction time and mental sharpness how quickly one writes an email, how quickly one clicks on a particular link, uh, how much one goes back and forth in a Google search. All of these things that are much better suited 
to a continual type of measurement. The study was funded by the Defense Department to explore the prevention of illness for soldiers in group living quarters. But it could be developed for a broader audience. It's possible one day in the future, just as your smartphone tells you it's time to leave for an appointment to be on time, it could alert you that you're at risk of a virus. Allison Aubrey, NPR News. Support for NPR health coverage comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to shorten the gap between cancer research and cancer care. Learn more about Dana-Farber's momentum of discovery at DanaFarber.org stories. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, experts are predicting an escalation of the war in Ukraine as both sides receive new weaponry. And there's a brutal government crackdown on gangs happening in El Salvador, leading to thousands of arbitrary detentions. It's 729. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms, custom builders of high-performance, healthy homes and places that strengthen our communities. Supporting Climate Interactive's mission to help people everywhere create a sustainable and equitable future with their online climate solutions simulator. Climateinteractive.org and thoughtforms-corp.com. From NPR News, I'm Giles Snyder. As investigators in Southern California work to find out why a gunman killed 10 people and injured at least another 10 at a ballroom dance studio on Monterey Park, President Biden is offering support to the victims' families. Here's NPR's Marie Andrusevich. The president said the attack has deeply affected the Asian American and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islanders community, adding that Monterey Park is home to one of the largest of these communities in the U.S. The president said that he was directing Homeland Security to provide full federal support in assisting the investigation. Biden also ordered the U.S. flag to be flown at half-staff at the White House and other government buildings. Authorities have identified the gunman. He was found dead yesterday of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. NPR has learned that the Food and Drug Administration is considering a big shift in the nation's COVID-19 vaccine strategy. NPR's Rob Stein says the goal would be making it less complicated to get the vaccine. A top federal official who is not authorized to speak publicly tells me the agency is considering making the whole vaccine regimen much less complicated and confusing. Most people would just get whatever the latest version of the vaccine is, probably each fall like the flu shot. They wouldn't have to worry about how many shots they've already had and, you know, which one they got when or any of that. An FDA advisory committee scheduled to meet on Thursday to recommend how best to proceed. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. 
This weekend's mass shooting in Monterey Park, California, had an impact on Lunar New Year celebrations in Massachusetts. Security was tightened at the festival yesterday in Lowell. Organizer Cameron Saibong said he was devastated by the news. You know, everybody's just coming together to unite and experience the new year and bring in New Year luck. And that got to happen. I don't know. I don't have no words to say. Sayabong believed it was important to show up and unite in the face of tragedy. The daughter of Congresswoman Catherine Clark is due in court today. She was arrested over the weekend on Boston Common. Police say she spray-painted the Parkman Bandstand Monument during a protest. She's also charged with assaulting a police officer. Congresswoman Clark only said that she's confident in how the legal system will handle the case. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu will deliver her first State of the City address this week. She's scheduled to speak Wednesday night at 7 from the MGM Music Hall at Fenway. WBUR and WBUR.org will have live coverage. We'll also hear from Mayor to, from, from Mayor Wu today as she's set to appear on Radio Boston. That's at 11 and 3 here on WBUR. It's 732. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University Student Employment, connecting you to smart, reliable students for part-time work. Free job listings at bu.edu seo. In sports, make it five wins in a row for the Bruins. They topped the San Jose Sharks 4-0 yesterday at the Garden. The Bees will hit the road tomorrow. Their first stop is Montreal. In women's hockey yesterday, the Boston Pride fell to the Montreal Force 2-1. to Tonight, the Celtics will visit the Orlando Magic. In your forecast, temperatures today won't rise far past where they are right now, the mid-30s. Rain this morning becomes snow this afternoon. We could get as much as four inches in Boston and Worcester. As you head north and near New Hampshire, totals could reach up to six inches. Tonight, the snow may continue, otherwise cloudy and mid-20s. Tomorrow, skies gradually clear for a sunny day. We may reach near 40 degrees. It's 36 degrees right now in Boston at 733. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the George Gund Foundation working to make Cleveland and Northeast Ohio more globally competitive, livable, sustainable, and just. More information available at gundfdn.org. And from the Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faudel. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Ukrainians, Russians, and independent analysts are all suggesting the war in Ukraine may escalate soon. One reason they think that is that both countries are receiving new weapons from their allies. NPR national security correspondent Greg Myrie has been covering this war all along. He's on the line. Greg, good morning. Good morning, Steve. When we talk about new weapons from allies, of course, we include NATO allies announcing a large weapons package for Ukraine. How's that likely to affect the war? 
Right. So uh, the U.S. and NATO allies announced in, in Germany last week what appears to be the biggest single package since the war began. And the focus is really on two key areas. The first is more air defense, which Ukraine needs to guard against these persistent Russian missile strikes against the electricity grid. And the second part of this is really armored vehicles. Uh, the U.S. alone says it's going to send more than 500 of them. This would be crucial for Ukraine to carry out a ground offensive. And as we've, we've heard, Ukraine has been pleading for tanks. It says it needs a couple hundred. Uh, Britain agreed last week to send about a dozen or so. But the U.S. and Germany, who have the best tanks in the world, have not agreed to send them yet, though it's still under debate. Nonetheless, the Ukrainians are getting more weapons. The Russians seem to be gathering up weapons from North Korea. What's going on? Yeah, the White House says that Russian leader Vladimir Putin sent trains to North Korea in November. They were loaded with weapons and ammunition and then had to travel thousands of miles to be delivered to Russian fighters in Ukraine. Now, I spoke about this with Doug Lute. He's a retired U.S. Army lieutenant general who also served as the U.S. ambassador to NATO. Now, he noted all the speculation that we've heard about Western support for Ukraine possibly waning over time, but that hasn't happened. He pointed that 50 countries took part in these talks in Germany last week where they supported Ukraine and pledged all these additional weapons. And at the same time, on whom is Putin relying for support? North Korea, okay, with a couple trains of ammunition, right? And Iran, by way of sort of Home Depot quality drones. I mean, the contrast here is really sharp. And, and Lute adds that this is just one of several trend lines currently pointing in Ukraine's favor. We should just note, though, uh, more weapons, more ammunition could change the war, but could also just lead to a World War I kind of stalemate where millions of shells are fired across the lines. Is there anything on the horizon that would more certainly change the trajectory of the war? Well, without trying to, to, to see the future uh, with, with crystal clear vision, we are hearing from the Ukrainians and Russians, as you noted, that they're likely to launch a new offensive as we get toward the end of winter or early spring. And in particular, we're hearing uh, that we should keep an eye on Crimea, the peninsula at the southern tip of Ukraine. What makes that such a vital place? Well, you know, the Russians seized Ukraine, Crimea back at the beginning of the war in 2014. They're well entrenched there. But if Ukraine could cut off supply lines uh, it w to, to Crimea, even if they don't attack Crimea directly, it would leave Russian forces very, very vulnerable. NPR's Greg Myrie, thanks so much. My pleasure. El Salvador is about to enter its 11th month under what the government calls a state of exception. That means the government has suspended certain constitutional guarantees in an effort to fight criminal gangs. NPR's Ada Peralta has been reporting in El Salvador, and he joins us now from the capital, San Salvador. Good morning, Ada. Good morning, Leila. So tell us how we got here. Yeah, um, Nayib Bukele became president uh, in El Salvador in the summer of 2019. At the time, he was the youngest president in Latin America, and he tried a truce with the gangs uh, that had dominated much of this country. Mm -hmm. But in March of last year, uh, gangs killed 80 people in a single weekend, and President Bukele responded with overwhelming force. He deployed the military, and so far, according to the government, uh, they have arrested more than 60,000 people by 
by some estimates, that is about 2% of the adult population here. Wow, that's a lot of people. Now, you've been out reporting in the country. What does it feel like? There's troops everywhere. Mm. Um, Some neighborhoods are literally surrounded by military men. Um, Outside of the prisons, uh, we've seen mothers looking for their sons who they say are innocent. We've seen a lot of empty neighborhoods. Some that used to be bustling are now eerily quiet. Um, I spoke to El Salvador's Justice Minister, Gustavo Villatoro, and he was emphatic that this is the only way to end the violence that has plagued this country for so long. And he was emphatic that a lot of the people who are in jail will remain there. Let's listen. A big part of the Black Brotherhood, it's against society. For them, we have just one way. Putting all of them in prison forever putting all of them in prison forever. A pretty extreme approach, it appears. One of the reasons so many Salvadorans leave their country is violence, though. Is this approach working? Is it popular? The easy answer is yes, it's working. Yes, it's popular. People here say that uh, the murders that they used to see every day have stopped um, in some of the neighborhoods that we've been in. People joked that you used to get in, but you never got out. Um, But human rights groups say that this approach is simply cruel and that we don't know what the government's true intentions are. For Mm. example, the U.S. has accused one of President Bukele's top advisors of paying gangs for political favors. And El Faro, an investigative outfit here, has published pictures of him meeting with top gang leaders. I asked the justice minister about this. I asked him why somebody like Carlos Marroquin wasn't in jail when everyone else suspected of dealing with gangs was. Yeah. Here in El Salvador, we have a lot of people who are trying to create some type of tales about different people who were for, for the president. We are fighting against terrorists. So what those terrorists try to create? What is the, the, the truth about their stories? But look, it's, it's not just the, the journalists here in El Salvador. It's the U.S. government, right, that has said it in black and white. And pay they have... by, by whom? Pay by whom? Who pay? So those those, those periodists, are not no, true. they are trying but there's to audio. destroy. There's there's images of Look this man in with w- the Maras. Yeah, yeah, you know. Okay, you're right. But in now, now are they? I can create an audio with with your voice. Essentially, he's claiming fake news. Um, but these things raise questions about whether the government is cutting deals that they're not telling anyone about. Hmm. NPR's Ader Peralta reporting from San Salvador. Thank you so much, Ader. Thank you, Leila. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Coming up next on Morning Edition, how kids are reacting as some Massachusetts school districts switch from diesel to electric school buses. And in our next hour, Vice President Kamala Harris marked the 50th anniversary of Roe v. Wade yesterday with a speech about the path forward now that the Supreme Court has overturned the landmark decision. In your forecast, 
mid-30s and windy today. Rain this morning will turn to snow this afternoon. Up to four inches expected around Boston and Worcester. Near New Hampshire, we may see up to six inches. The snow may continue into the evening as temperatures dip to the mid-20s, then cloudy overnight and Tomorrow, those clouds gradually clear for a sunny day near 40 degrees and still windy. It's 36 degrees in Boston at 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental of Massachusetts, passionate about improving oral health across the state and reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Visiting your dentist and taking care of your mouth could help protect your heart health and much more. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. Now in business news, nearly as many people are staying at Boston area hotels as before the pandemic. The Boston-based Pinnacle Advisory Group says hotels in Boston and Cambridge hit a 70 percent occupancy rate last year. Compare that to 2021, when hotel occupancy was at just 45 percent. The group predicts that this year the occupancy rate will tick up to pre-pandemic levels. Massachusetts drivers are now paying about five cents less per gallon at the pump compared to the rest of the country. AAA says the average price for a gallon of regular fuel is now $3.37 in the state. That's down seven cents in the past week. The average price of diesel is $5.07 a gallon, down a penny compared to last week. It's 744. Follow this news all morning with WBUR. Listen on the WBUR mobile app while you're working out, hitting the road, or riding the T. Support for NPR comes from this station and from DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. DataIQ.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quill Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at ZQuill.com and from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shinoy. That's the sound of a loud, diesel-guzzling yellow school bus. New funding options coming online may mean fewer students hear that sound, as more school districts are able to switch to school buses powered by electricity. As WBUR's Carrie Young reports, that cleaner and quieter alternative is becoming more common on Massachusetts roads. Electric school buses look the same as a regular gas or diesel bus, but they sure don't sound or even smell like one. At the Beverly Public Schools bus lot, driver Henry Berkemouse demonstrates how one works. After the initial beeping stops, a green light on the dashboard tells Berkemouse that he can hit the accelerator. It operates the same as any other bus. The thing is, it drives sort of like a golf cart. Second and fourth graders Angelina and Kenneth Dennis ride this bus to Cove Elementary School every day. They love the quieter ride, even if the other parts of the ride are still the same. It's awesome. It's not noisy. 
Yeah, well, some of the kids are a bit loud, so. Their mom's favorite part? No diesel exhaust, which can sometimes trigger asthma in young kids. Dana Cruikshank is the district's transportation director. He says he can really notice the difference. Having all, all diesel buses there, I'm walking in and around all those running diesel buses, so I could really smell the fumes. You don't smell, there's no fumes on this bus at all. Electric school buses are also energy efficient. They use about 60% less fossil fuels than traditional buses. But they're expensive, costing up to $350,000, which is two and a half times the cost of a diesel bus. And the charging stations are complicated to install. But a stream of new funding options is making them a more viable option for Massachusetts school districts. Today, the city of Beverly operates two electric school buses. Three more are coming in the spring. And officials hope to transition the entire 48-vehicle fleet to electric within the next decade. To do that, the school district is partnering with an electric transportation financing startup called Highland Electric Fleets. We have about $250 million in investment capital at the moment, and that gives us a good amount of runway to go out and try to convince people that this is a good thing to do and now is the right time to do it. Amy McGuire is Highland's Director of Market Development. She explains the company buys the buses and then leases them to the district for the same price that a diesel bus lease would cost. It's profitable because electric buses are about 30 to 50 percent cheaper to run and maintain. McGuire says it's a good long-term investment. So the more we can get electric school buses on the road, the more the market grows and the technology cost goes down. Federal funds are also now targeting cleaner and more efficient school transportation. Last summer, the Environmental Protection Agency announced it would give out $5 billion in grants as part of a clean school bus initiative. Five Massachusetts districts qualified in the first round of funding, including Lawrence, New Bedford, and Fall River. That's going to put 76 new electric buses on Massachusetts roads by next year. Legal pressure from environmental groups in New England has also spurred change. That exhaust coming from those tailpipes is filled with particulate matter and toxins. We really have to put the pressure on to get these companies to transition. Heather Govern is with the Conservation Law Foundation. Her organization has been suing transportation companies for violating state idling regulations in New England. In the last four years, the group has settled four lawsuits with school bus vendors. They're now required to install software to monitor how long they idle and phase in electric school buses. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. There's another hour of Morning Edition coming up. And later today at 11 is Radio Boston. Tiziana Deering is here to give us a preview of the show. Good morning, Tiziana. It's so nice to see you. Nice to see you. Nice to start the week listening to Carrie Young, too. That's always fantastic. All right. So today, uh, lots to cover with Mondays with Boston Mayor Michelle Wu uh, on the show today. You know, once a month on a Monday, she comes in. We ask our questions. We ask listener questions. So much to cover. Everything from her statement of solidarity that she issued yesterday in response to the latest horrible mass shooting in Monterey Mm. Park in California. Last week, she started uh, floating a rent control. Mm -hmm. She calls it rent stabilization. And some people are disputing that it actually is that. 
<clears throat> builder's not happy, advocate's not happy, yeah. right? So does that mean she's gone down the middle, or does it mean she needs to do something different? Mm-hmm. So, you know, protesters wanting to rename Faneuil Hall, so lots to ask her about. I also want to let people know we're doing a live set in Boston Thursday night at the Coolidge Corner Theater, The Departed at 7, and a panel afterward live. And uh, you can get tickets there at the Coolidge Corner website. I love the live events. I love that you're doing them more. Thanks. That's Radio Boston today at 11. It's 7.51. Hi, this is Steve Inskeep with a reminder that this public radio station is a collaboration. Many of my colleagues are working in the middle of the night to bring you the latest information when you get up in the morning. You don't have to do that, but you can contribute in other ways like donating your old car. Turn your old car into Morning Edition, all things considered, and all the voices you trust. There's never been a more important time to strengthen your station. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. Patricia Engel's new short story collection delves into the question of what if. It's called The Faraway World. And each story features characters searching for something more in their lives. These are gritty yet hopeful stories about the human condition, told largely through characters that are part of the Latin American diaspora. Engel says she wrote these 10 stories one by one over the last decade. They came to me at very different points in my life when I was thinking about very different things. But of course, they are connected by this, um, the motivating force for change, desire, and the ever-changing conditions of identity and movements mm-hmm. and changing geography and landscape and diaspora. Those are things that I explore in all my writing, and it's something that I explore in my life. So of course, it permeates my stories. You start the collection with a story about twins who mm-hmm. whose mother really pushes on them that they are one. The story that you're mentioning, Aida, is a story about two twin sisters, and one of them disappears. And the mother has always really encouraged their closeness, that very particular closeness of twins, and the father always pushed their individuality. And you get a sense of how that conflicting message comes up against them and how they perceive life and their relationships and roles. And then what the disappearance of one of them does to the family unit. That story came about because I was watching a true crime program once about a teenage girl who had gone missing. And I wasn't so interested in what happened to the girl, but just the faces of the family members who were grappling with her absence. And it got me thinking about how so many family units really hinge on the efforts of one person in that family at times. Yeah. So many of your stories, they end, they're real gut punches. They're not long, they're short, but you end with a punch in the gut over all kinds of different things as people search for a better life, whether it's physical perfection, economic sovereignty, a better future for their children. But a lot of it eludes them. That seems to be a theme or a central theme of the stories you're telling here. Yeah, um, it's of course that's that's the nature of desire desire comes with risk right and you can't really create change without taking risks and launching yourself into the unknown that's really what the faraway world explores is going beyond what we know whether it's um, our homeland our community our destiny a specific relationship and pushing beyond that and how that's a force for change and also really what keeps life in motion there's one story called guapa. I think that's the word or slang word for beautiful woman, right? 
Yeah, it's also often a turn of endearment. Now, this is a woman who has struggled with her weight her whole life, being called things like fat or, you know, that she could be pretty. She leaves Columbia for New York for what she hopes will be a better life. She spends a lot of it redesigning her own body. If you could talk about writing that story and what she represents. Yeah, Guapa is a, a story about a woman who um, really she's she's more comfortable with herself than than she lets on. And mm. the messages she receives are very much external, starting from her mother and starting from infancy. So she begins to repackage herself, although she makes it very clear to the reader that her life hasn't really suffered um, due to her physical form. But she's constantly told that she could be better. She could be better, um, whether it's for the male gaze or the female gaze, it's for some sort of external approval. And when she starts to acquire the means to change herself, um, she starts doing that with plastic surgery, which has become more and more accessible. This is something that has fascinated and horrified me at different times about the ways that the body is changed and how um, it's, you know, repurposed as a commodity. And our ownership of our body uh, starts to change in a way as we start to accommodate it for other people's comfort and what we perceive will make them feel more comfortable Mm. with what we look like. There's something very devastating about that story that stuck with me, maybe as a woman being told your whole life, like you said, what to look like and what to be like. And ultimately, the story ends on a difficult note and she has to go back to Colombia and she says all of this. I think it was her mother that tells her all of this for a life like that. Yeah, she is a factory worker and she's perfectly content and she's also coming up against the idea that she is not successful enough. Mm. Her mother constantly judges her even before things start to change in her life saying, you should be further along. You've been there a long time. You should have things to show for it. So it's not just the expectations that come with the body, especially on women, but what does it mean when you embrace on an immigrant life and there are certain markers of success of the journey where you're arriving at some sense of progress or completion and how people monetize or place value on those different markers. The name, the title of the collection, The Faraway World, after reading your stories, is The Faraway World something unachievable? I think each person has their own idea of what The Faraway World signifies to them. Um, it's funny, the title of this book, The Faraway World, came came late, um, and it wasn't a title that I had going on. It's not the title of any of the stories. It's actually um, something that I found written, scrawled on the back of a photograph mm. that my grandfather had taken before he left his native Austria. It was a photograph of the tomb of his mother and grandparents before he was leaving to Colombia, where he ended up settling and and having uh, getting married and having nine children, one of whom was my father. Mm. And on the back of the card, it said, this is goodbye from your beloved son who is about to leave for the faraway world. So that's something that really settled into my heart for a time. And as I put these stories together, I thought, well, we each have our faraway worlds that that we'll get to one way or another. This place that you're going to where you don't know what Mm -hmm. will come. Incredible. Patricia Engel, her short story collection is called The Faraway World. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Leila. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. 
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Layla Falden. And I'm Steve Inskeep. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington, The Art of Burning, a comedy exploring the love, rage, and responsibility that go with marriage and parenting in America. Now through February 12th, HuntingtonTheater.org. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Authorities in L.A. say the man responsible for fatally shooting 10 people at a dance hall killed himself after police stopped his van. It's Monday, January 23rd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Vice President Kamala Harris marked the 50th anniversary of Roe v. Wade yesterday by looking forward. The right of every woman in every state in this country to make decisions about her own body is on the line. And a pandemic-era law is set to expire in April, possibly leaving 6 million low-income people without health care. Plus, the FDA may shift the national COVID vaccination strategy to an annual updated shot like the flu vaccine. As far as the tools that we have right now, I think it just makes the most sense to you know, plan to update each year as close as we can to the currently circulating variant. Snow this afternoon, up to four inches in Boston and Worcester. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. California officials are searching for the motive behind Saturday evening's deadly mass shooting at a dance venue in Monterey Park. A gunman described as an older Asian man killed 10 people and wounded 10 more. He tried to attack a second dance hall but was stopped by two patrons. He then fled. Police pulled over the suspect the next day, but he shot himself to death as they approached his van. The dance halls are popular with Asian Americans who were celebrating the Lunar New Year. NPR's Juliana Kim spoke with Monterey Park City Council member Thomas Wong. Local authorities said the shooting occurred inside a ballroom studio. Council member Thomas Wong never visited the dance hall, but he says it's a staple in the community. It's been there and open for a number of years. I know people have gone there for lessons and to right, just enjoy people's company. Wong says the area around the studio is popular too. There's a nearby bank and noodle shop. Just a few hours before the shooting, Wong was two blocks away enjoying the city's annual Lunar New Year festival. He said his community is shocked, saddened, and on edge in the aftermath of the shooting, and it's especially painful to have happened on the eve of a beloved holiday. Juliana Kim, NPR News. President Biden's personal lawyer says a fresh search of Biden's Delaware home has turned up more classified documents. NPR's Tamara Keith says this time FBI agents participated. On Friday, the FBI went to Wilmington for this truly extraordinary search of a sitting president's home. The president wasn't there, but his lawyers were, and they said that they they kept the search quiet as it was happening at the request of the Justice Department. And according to Biden, team, the FBI did find additional items with classified markings dating back as far as his time in the Senate. Uh, So any hope in the White House of this issue quickly fading, um, it's back front and center with more documents being found. NPR's Tamara Keith reporting. Poland's prime minister says his government will ask Germany for permission to send German-made battle tanks to Ukraine. NPR's Rob Schmitz reports. 
Polish Prime Minister Mateusz Morawiecki said Poland will seek permission from Germany to export German-made Leopard battle tanks to Ukraine. He added that even if Germany does not give Poland permission, Warsaw would make its own decision to send the tanks. On Sunday, German Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbach told French TV channel LCI that Germany would not stand in the way if Poland requested approval from Berlin to export its Leopard tanks to Ukraine, adding that Warsaw had not yet requested it. Baerbach's comments were the first from Germany that signaled it would allow Leopard tanks to be sent to Ukraine. Rob Schmitz, NPR News, Berlin. Russian officials say the Western debate over whether to send tanks to Ukraine shows nervousness on the Allies' part. You're listening to NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Boston city officials are showing their support after the deadly mass shooting in California over the weekend. The shooting in Monterey Park targeted a Lunar New Year celebration. Mayor Michelle Wu and the Boston City Council say they're devastated by the violence and are calling on national leaders to take action. Boston says it will stand with Monterey Park as it celebrates the holiday this week. Despite the tragedy in California, the city of Lowell went ahead with its Lunar New Year celebration. Organizers wanted to show solidarity with the Asian American community. WBUR's Walter Rothman reports there was extra security on hand. Four costumed lion dancers performed in front of Lowell City Hall with police motorcycles sealing the perimeter. Organizer Cameron Saivong says they never considered canceling. It's very important to us to come out and come together, represent, still that we are here to unite as one, as a community. Lowell State Representative Roddy Mom says the city stepped up to make the community feel safe. Luckily, in our great city of Lowell, they had police officer and all of the public safety that really is put set in place so that we can see a child have a smile on their face and that is very, very touching. More Lunar New Year celebrations will be held in the coming days. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. More than 170 people are now serving on a state on state boards and commissions thanks to appointments Charlie Baker made during his final weeks as governor. That number is more than his predecessor, Deval Patrick, who made about 150 appointments during his final weeks as governor. But it is fewer than Mitt Romney, who made more than 200. Governor Healy's office has not said if she believes Baker's appointments should have been hers to make. Instead, her office tells the Boston Globe, it's focused on putting a strong team in place. The grasshopper weather vane on top of Thaniel Hall has a long-lost, forgotten twin. That duplicate weather vane was a family heirloom that sat atop a barn in New Hampshire. Now it's going up for auction. Bids start at $180,000. Art collectors expected to sell for up to half a million dollars. It's 806. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack Repertory Theater with Letters from Home, a true story exploring the intergenerational legacy of a Cambodian family through February 5th, MRT.org. The Bruins shut out the San Jose Sharks yesterday at the Garden. The final was 4 to nothing. The Bees will skate with the Canadiens tomorrow in Montreal. Tonight, the Celtics are on the road to play the Orlando Magic. Rain will change over to snow by this afternoon. The National Weather Service predicts... Th- 
three to four inches in Boston and Worcester, up to six inches along the New Hampshire border, less as you head south. High today in the 30s. Snow ends overnight tonight. The low will be in the 20s. Clouds give way to sun tomorrow. It'll be near 40. Right now it's 36 degrees in Boston at 807. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people, and Jarl and Pamela Mohn, thanking the people who make public radio great every day and also those who listen. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Falden. The man who authorities say shot and killed 10 people at a dance hall in Southern California over the weekend is dead. Police say the man opened fire in a community where many people were celebrating the Lunar New Year. His high-powered weapon was banned in California. Los Angeles County Sheriff Robert Luna spent much of yesterday giving the public information, though as often happens, it's hard to understand the gunman's motive. The investigation continues. Uh, We want to know. We want to know how something like this, something this awful can happen. NPR's Nathan Rott is in Monterey Park, the community where this happened, and he joins us now. Good morning, Nate. Hey, good morning, Leila. So a really traumatic start to a new year as people celebrate the start of the year of the rabbit. Tell us what we know about the shooting. Yeah, so the shooting happened on Saturday, the yeah. Lunar New Year Eve, here in Monterey Park at a dance hall that we understand is usually frequented by elderly Asian Americans. The gunman, who authorities have identified as a 72-year-old Asian man, walked into the dance hall at around 10.20 p.m. local time, opened fire on the crowd, uh, killing 10 people, injuring 10 more. He then went to another dance hall in Alhambra, which is just north of Monterey Park. And authorities say he uh, was disarmed there by two patrons and then fled. So he was disarmed, but he still escaped. Yeah, that's right. And so, you know, yesterday there was this huge manhunt underway here in Los Angeles County until around midday uh, when police stopped a vehicle matching a description of the suspects in Torrance, which is about, you know, 30 minutes southwest of here for people that don't know the L.A. basin geography. Authorities say when officers approached the van he was in, a single shot rang out, uh, and then they later found the man dead in the driver's seat from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Uh, There were items in the vehicle, authorities say, which tied the man to both crime scenes, and he is believed to have acted alone. Nate, as we both know, these mass shootings happen so often, and it's hard to make sense of such senseless violence. But do authorities have any idea why he did this? At this point, no. That's still the big question hanging over this whole tragedy. You know, that and how the man was able to obtain the weapon he used, a semi-automatic assault pistol that had an extended magazine, which is illegal in California. Uh, So authorities are looking into how he was able to obtain that. They're also still trying to identify the victims. Los Angeles County Sheriff Robert Luna says five men and five women were killed, all were in their 50s or 60s or older. They're not releasing all of the information about the victims until family can be properly notified. And Monterey Park is a predominantly Asian and Pacific Islander community. It's a place where many Chinese and Taiwanese Americans get their start in this country. So Mm. it may take some time for them to let family know what happened if they do have family abroad. So as you said, this happened over the Lunar New Year. It's such an important holiday for many Asian Americans. How are people doing? 
there's a lot of shock and a lot of outrage, as you'd imagine. You know, yeah. here's one of the people I talked to, uh, Vicky Quo, who came to Monterey Park to celebrate what he thought would be his first normal New Year holiday in years. After the pandemic, we finally had like normal life, and it's I believe it's the first uh, New Year uh, festival. So. It's pretty sad. Yeah. I mean, all the events yesterday in Monterey Park were canceled for the new year, and I know other parts of the city did that out of caution as well. So hard way to start the year. <sighs> NPR's Nate Rott in Monterey Park, California. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Vice President Harris was in Tallahassee, Florida yesterday to give a speech on abortion access. We know this fight will not be won until we secure this right for every American. It was the anniversary of Roe versus Wade, the decision by the Supreme Court that established a constitutional right to abortion, which did not quite last 50 years. NPR political reporter Deepa Shivaram was traveling with the vice president. Good morning. Hey, Steve. Good morning. I guess we should note last year's court decision threw this fight mainly to the states. So what has the administration been doing at the federal level? Yeah, the top line from Vice President Harris's remarks yesterday was announcing a new memorandum that the president signed. It directs agencies in the administration like the Department of Health and Human Services and the Department of Justice to look into how they can protect access to medicated abortions. And Harris yesterday also warned that because of certain abortion restrictions, people have lost basic access to care and medications. And she called on Congress to codify Roe versus Wade, though with this Congress, that's not going to happen. But overall, her speech was a continuation of what Harris has been doing for the last several months on this issue, trying to rally advocates and stakeholders all over the country and show solidarity. She took the stage yesterday wearing green, which has become the color of the reproductive rights movement. Well, how did those advocates respond? Yeah, there were people from all over Florida who came in for this event, some people who took nine-hour bus rides from other parts of the state to come, and people were pretty fired up. There's already restricted access to abortions in Florida, and the Republican-led legislature is trying to pass more in the in more restrictions in the coming year. But Harris told the crowd not to be tired or discouraged in their fight because they are, quote, on the right side of history. And for the advocates I talked to, they felt a sense of relief. They had this feeling that there was someone from the White House coming and joining them in this fight. One person that I talked to who was at the event yesterday said that she felt there was a boost in morale after Harris's speech because Florida often feels like a lost cause on reproductive rights. And that kind of enthusiasm and mobilization is exactly what the White House is trying to lean into. They want people engaged on this issue the same way they were going into the midterm elections last year. Um, Was giving this speech in the capital of Florida aimed in any way at the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, who is thought to be considering a presidential run in 2024? Mm-hmm. Yeah, doing this speech in Tallahassee was strategic. Uh, we were just a few miles from Florida's Capitol building and the governor's mansion. And while Harris didn't mention DeSantis by name, she did take a word that he often uses, which is freedom, and tried to flip the script. Can we truly be free if a woman cannot make decisions about her own body? Can we truly be free if a doctor cannot care for her patients? Can we truly be free if families cannot make intimate decisions about the course of their own lives? 
And Harris went on to refer to officials who are restricting abortion access as so-called leaders and said they were attacking the very foundations of freedom. So it was interesting to see how she kind of took on DeSantis without actually calling him out. And so far, we haven't heard a response from the governor. NPR political reporter Deepa Shivram, thanks so much. Thank you. A pandemic-era law that kept people automatically enrolled in Medicaid is expiring soon. In the spring of 2020, the federal government recognized that it would be a really bad time for people to lose access to health care. So it changed the rules to keep low-income people insured. From WHYY in Philadelphia, Alan Yu has more. Usually, people on Medicaid have to reapply for the program every year. They have to fill out information about their income and residence to make sure they're still eligible. It's a process that can become a barrier. Robert has not been on Medicaid for a few years. We're not using his last name because he has a medical condition he would like to keep private. He recently signed up for Medicaid again because his daughter encouraged him to go for a checkup. He's done the paperwork before, so it only took him about half an hour with his daughter's help. He has ADHD, so having a second set of eyes on his application was good. And if we miss one little detail, then we will reject you. You got to go back and check your work. I usually get two applications, so if I mess up on one, I can <laughs> do the other one, you know. If someone makes a mistake on their forms to get Medicaid, they could be denied coverage. In March 2020, federal legislation required states to keep people on the program as long as the country was in a public health emergency. They no longer had to reapply to stay in. It's allowed for a continuity that I think has really been life-saving for a lot of folks. Jen Lydeck is the Director of Social Services and Community Engagement at the Public Health Management Corporation, a nonprofit that runs sex health centers in Philadelphia. I know so many patients who have now been able to really finally get ahead of a lot of their health conditions to be living with a chronic and acute health condition and know that they are going to be able to consistently access medication. The latest spending bill that Congress passed ends continuous Medicaid enrollment. That means starting this April, states can kick people off the rolls. People on Medicaid, or the medical staff helping them, will have to go back to renewing their paperwork every year, or run the risk of losing access to medicine or treatments that they need. It was kind of this constant battle and this constant struggle to make sure that we, our patients, stay connected to health insurance. Philadelphia Health Commissioner Cheryl Bettigold has worked in city health centers for years. She says taking away continuous Medicaid enrollment is a step backward. There was this moment with the pandemic in which we recognized that it was really important for everybody to have access to care. We've somehow changed our minds about that. That is potentially quite short-sighted. Medicaid enrollment grew by almost 30% during the pandemic. The federal government estimates that the barrier of paperwork will mean more than 6 million people could lose their Medicaid coverage, despite still being eligible. But there will be some lasting changes from the pandemic. For instance, Oregon will allow children who qualify for Medicaid to enroll at birth and stay enrolled until age six without having to reapply. 
Washington State, California, and New Mexico are considering similar policies as well. For NPR News, I'm Alan Yu in Philadelphia. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, officials in Florida are defending their decision to block an advanced placement high school course in African-American studies. And in 20 minutes, the FDA is considering shifting the nation's approach to COVID vaccinations to make them more like an annual flu shot. It's 819. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. So far, Joe Biden has given us a tale of two presidencies. The first year defined by the Afghanistan fiasco, the second year defined by Joe Biden rallying the Western world to face down Vladimir Putin in Ukraine. But now he's up against a Republican House majority. Journalist Chris Whipple on what's next for the Biden presidency. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. If you had to sit down and write something in cursive handwriting, could you? Today would be a good day to give yourself a refresher. That's because it's National Handwriting Day. And, of course, the day has a Massachusetts connection. The holiday is today because it's also the birthday of John Hancock, the guy who's famous for his big signature on the Declaration of Independence. He was also the first governor of Massachusetts and is buried at the Granary Burying Ground in Boston. Rain possible throughout the morning. That should become snow by mid-afternoon. Expect as much as four inches from Boston to Worcester. Farther north near New Hampshire, up to six inches. We'll have high temperatures in the mid-30s. It might also be windy. The snow continues into the evening, then cloudy overnight with a low in the mid-20s. Tomorrow starts out overcast, then gradually clears for a sunny day with a high near 40. Right now it's 36 degrees in Boston at 821. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from Imaginable Futures, supporting the Institute for Women's Policy Research, working to close inequality gaps for women and improve the economic well-being of families. IWPR.org. And from the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high quality journalism in the 21st century. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. We have a critique today of Florida's latest move to limit what schools can teach. The State Department of Education rejected an AP class, advanced placement. It was to be an African-American studies class developed by the College Board, which shapes a lot of classes in this country. It's the latest example of the state limiting what can be taught or discussed in Florida classrooms. Governor Ron DeSantis signed two laws last year that limited how and when teachers could talk about things like racism and sexuality. We promised we would enact big education reforms, and we delivered. 
and they have now delivered an end to this AP class of African-American history. The critique of that move comes from State Senator Chevron Jones, a Democrat who represents part of Miami-Dade County. Senator, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Steve. Um, I assume this is not the only class taught in Florida on black history. So what was this class supposed to be and where did it fit in? Yes, Steve, this was actually a pilot program that had come down from College Board um, that 60 other school uh, districts had already piloted. And there were actually teachers here within the state of Florida who have already reached out to me to let me know that they were a part of the planning committee um, and they were excited about what was uh, what was coming. It wasn't indoctrination, it wasn't ideology, it was facts that was uh, in this curriculum that um, Governor DeSantis made it clear that, you know what, we're not going to teach that here in the state of Florida until you all go back and take out some of the woke ideology that you're pushing. What were some of the facts, as you saw them, that would be in this course? I mean, there's a lot you could focus on in African-American history. What were they going to do? Um, some of the things that they were speak, uh, speaking about, and it was talking about the Black struggle. It was talking about the Black Lives Matter movement. It spoke about uh, Black queerness. Uh, those were some of the top three things that they, uh, that they spoke of. These are not issues that we should be shying away from or shielding away from students. These are st the stories in history of America's story that we should be embracing and we should be ensuring that children understand this. And especially considering the fact that we offer European history, we offer Spanish history, we offer art history. All of these are a part of the story in which make us that we should not be taking away from our children in the classroom. Now, the state education commissioner in making this move says, quote, we proudly require the teaching of African-American history. But then he goes on to just say, just not this this version of history. Would you agree that African-American history is still going to be taught somewhere? I think that you're going to start seeing a lot of communities to start to teach um, African-American history to children on their own. And the, the very fact that we are arguing that AP African-American studies violates the state law, it just goes to highlight just how vague last year's Stop Woke Act is and the danger um, that poses to the future of education uh, within the state. Uh, this decision, it just totally illustrates just how far um, this administration is willing to weaponize policies under the guise of individual, individual freedom when in fact we are taking away rights from our students and truthfully from their parents. Um, there is in the education department's defense of its action a lot of, I think what can fairly be called labeling, saying certain writers are discussed in the program who are self-avowed communists or Marxists or leftists, uh, that sort of thing. I guess that's the first question here. Is it all right to have people from a leftist perspective as part of an AP class? Well, I, I, I'll be honest with you, as, as, we're, as we look at the AP courses and the, the level of students who are taking these courses, uh, it is college level classes that is exploratory. Uh, we send our children to school to, to learn. We send, we're not, we're not sending, teachers are not in the classroom uh, indoctrinating or uh, uh, telling uh, children how they should feel based on uh, others and what they've done. Uh, in history. Uh, we, we teach an array of different things in the classroom, not just for perspective, but also for individuals to see from the lens of others. When we start banning books of individuals like Angela Davis, when we start banning books like uh, uh, the Letters from the Birmingham Jail by Martin Luther King, uh, those writers were writing from their perspective, from their time, from that moment in history. Is it your understanding the state objected to the letter from the Birmingham Jail by Martin Luther King? 
the one of those weren't one of the books that have been banned under the state of Florida of the list of books um, that need to need to be reviewed um, um, from the Department of Education. And that list came out last year. Um, there is also an objection to Kimberly Crenshaw, a professor at Columbia Law School in UCLA. Um, and Florida describes uh, Crenshaw as, quote, the founder of intersectionality. Um, I feel we need to explain for at least some of our listeners what intersectionality is and why would anyone find it threatening? Well, more, uh, when we're studying, that, that's the one thing about uh, African-American studies, because it's, it is cross-intersectional. I mean, we're not just talking about it from the perspective of from the from uh, from the black movement. We're talking about how this plays into other uh, other lives, how it plays into our immigrant community, how it plays into our LGBT uh, community. And this is just not a Florida problem. Uh, Florida is just the testing ground. But people across the country should be concerned that legislatures and governors across the country we're, are going to do exactly what Florida is doing and we have the potential of raising a entire generation of black children who will not be able to see themselves represented in their own state or in education and this is just a glimpse and the tone and tenor of what a possible Ron DeSantis run for president will look like. Of course uh, this has been described as a crusade in part for parents rights what are you hearing from parents who are on your side of the debate in a few seconds? Well, uh, the last thing is we just yesterday, a group of parents, black parents, have made it clear that they're coming up to Tallahassee uh, on Wednesday because they want to be a part of this fight uh, to ensure that our history um, is, is taught, it is factual, and that students have the same experience that every child should have in learning about the history of this country and what has happened across this world. Florida State Senator Chevron Jones, pleasure talking with you, sir. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. It's all mine. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, the latest on the investigation into the mass shooting in Monterey, California this weekend that killed 10 people. It's 829. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. I'm Jane Clayson, an earth scientist at the Federal Lab in Tennessee, says she was fired after speaking out about climate change. It turns out many scientists feel stifled when it comes to telling the truth about the planet in crisis. The severity and the urgency of the climate crisis, that message isn't really making it out there, at least not to the extent that we think it needs to be. Next time on Here and Now, today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. From NPR News, I'm Giles Snyder. Authorities in Southern California are working to find the motive behind Saturday night's mass shooting at a ballroom dance studio in Monterey Park. The shooting happened at the end of street festivals celebrating Lunar New Year. Police say the suspected gunman, a 72-year-old Asian man, 
shot himself to death when officials pulled over his van yesterday. Here's NPR's Liz Baker reporting. Police tried to pull over the suspicious cargo van, which instead swerved into a shopping center parking lot. When officers approached the vehicle, they heard a single gunshot. Inside, the body of the suspect, and evidence that this was the man they were looking for, the gunman who killed 10 people at a Monterey Park dance studio on Saturday night. Many details are still unknown, including motive, and officials are still working to identify the victims and notify their next of kin. The shooting shocked the large Asian American community here and forced the cancellation of Sunday's big Lunar New Year festival. A banner advertising the event now flutters over a dark, empty street. A quiet reminder of the happy time this weekend should have been. Liz Baker, NPR News, Monterey Park, California. President Biden has issued a statement pledging full federal support in the investigation of the shooting. He's also ordered flags to be flown at half-staff at the White House and other government buildings. Wall Street is set to open in about an hour with global stocks rising today. The major markets in Europe advancing. Asian stocks closed higher today. This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Massachusetts will see more school buses powered by electricity next year rather than diesel or gas. As WBUR's Carrie Young reports, new funding options for school districts are paving the way. One funding source is coming from the startup world. School districts like Beverly have partnered with a company called Highland Electric Fleets. Highland buys the electric vehicles and leases them to districts for the same price as a diesel bus lease. In addition to being more environmentally friendly, electric buses are also 30 to 50 percent cheaper to run and maintain. Market Development Director Amy McGuire says it's a good long-term investment. So the more we can get electric school buses on the road, the more the market grows and the technology cost goes down. The EPA also announced $5 billion in grants to help districts go electric. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. The daughter of Congresswoman Catherine Clark is due in court today. She was arrested over the weekend on Boston Common. She's charged with assaulting a police officer during a protest. Police also say she spray-painted the Parkman Bandstand Monument. Congresswoman Clark says she's confident in how the legal system will handle the case. Commuter rail trains are stopping this morning at the system's newest station. The Pawtucket Central Falls Station is on the Providence Line. The station is part of a $63 million transit center just south of the Massachusetts border. It'll take riders just over an hour to reach South Station. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business. Providing small businesses with cybersecurity and fiber solutions at speeds up to 10 gigs. Comcast Business. Powering possibilities. The Bruins have now won five in a row. They beat the San Jose Sharks 4-0 yesterday at the Garden. The Bees will visit the Montreal Canadiens tomorrow. In women's hockey yesterday, the Boston Pride lost to the Montreal Force 2-1. Tonight, the Celtics will visit the Orlando Magic. And in your forecast, temperatures today won't rise far past where they are right now, the mid-30s. Rain this morning becomes snow this afternoon. We could get as much as four inches in Boston and Worcester as you head north and near New Hampshire. Totals could reach up to six inches. Tonight, cloudy in mid-20s and the snow may continue into the evening. Tomorrow, skies gradually clear for a sunny day. We may reach near 40 degrees and it'll be windy. It's 36 degrees in Boston at 834. 
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. And from Procter and Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Over the weekend, a gunman opened fire at a dance studio and killed 10 people. This happened in Monterey Park, California, where many people were celebrating the Lunar New Year. Many victims were older, and authorities say the suspected gunman was 72. He apparently shot himself hours later. A. Martinez spoke with Representative Judy Chu, who represents Monterey Park and is the chair of the Congressional Asian Pacific American Caucus. Congresswoman, Monterey Park uh, isn't just part of your district, but it's also your hometown. How are you and others in the community dealing with this right now? We feel so relieved that this shooter no longer poses a threat. All day long, people in the community were so fearful and anxious about whether they could uh, continue doing uh, what they do and attend Lunar New Year celebrations. Um, uh, they were frightened uh, and shocked by all that happened. So now um, they can feel safe again. What have you heard from people just in Monterey Park? I mean, I, I've been to Monterey Park so many times, Congresswoman. It's, it's one of the safer places in all of the area of Los Angeles. That's my impression of Monterey Park as well, having lived here for 37 years and having been its uh, mayor and council member. Uh, it was beyond shocking to see uh, this utter act of terrible violence, taking away 10 lives and putting 10 others in the hospital. Uh, and it was especially horrendous that it occurred only hours after our Lunar New Year Festival celebration where thousands of people were only one block away. The sheriff of L.A. County, Robert Luna, mentioned that the uh, massacre could have been deadlier if not for two brave community members who decided they were going to jump in and disarm the shooter. I have to praise them so much for their quick action. Uh, it, this could have been even more of a massacre, uh, but because they did that, lives were saved. And so uh, they are role models for us. What kind of support, uh, if you know, is being offered to the people affected by this? I do want to tell all the people out there that if you know one of the victims uh, or you have been a victim, then there is support there. We ha actually have a center over uh, at Langley Center. Uh, and so uh, we want to provide as many resources as possible to victims and victims' families. Lunar New Year activities were canceled Sunday when the shooter was still at large. Might that change now? I just hope that it can be revived because um, it was something that brought the whole community together. And Lunar New Year is the highlight of the year for Asian Americans. Uh, we do have other celebrations around the area, and I encourage residents to go to those as well. How do you think this shooting affects the Asian community in the U.S.? Well, there was a great sensitivity to the issue of violence. And certainly when I heard about uh, a shooting, I thought that it 
might have been an act of anti-Asian hate. The reason I thought this is because for the past three years, we have been victims of anti-Asian hate crimes and incidents. It was a terrible act of violence on top of uh, an Asian American community that is very, very sensitive to the issues of violence. That's why I felt it was so important to say to the people in the press conference that you are safe, this shooter is no longer active, and it is important to, to make sure that we go back to our activities. That's Democratic Congresswoman Judy Chu of California. Congresswoman, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. NPR has learned that the Food and Drug Administration wants to simplify the nation's COVID-19 vaccine strategy. The goal is to make COVID vaccines a little more like the annual flu shot. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein has the story and he joins us now. Good morning, Rob. Good morning. So what is the FDA considering exactly? A top federal official who is not authorized to speak publicly tells me the agency is considering making the whole vaccine regimen much less complicated and confusing. Right now, getting vaccinated means first getting what's called the primary vaccinations, two shots with the original vaccine spaced weeks apart. That's followed months later by at least one booster, which used to be one of the original vaccines, but is now one of the bivalent shots targeting Omicron. Basically, the FDA is considering doing away with that whole way of thinking about it. Instead, most people would just get whatever the latest version of the vaccine is, probably each fall like the flu shot. They wouldn't have to worry about how many shots they've already had and, you know, which one they got when or any of that. Mm. And that one shot would be updated every year to try to get as close a match as possible to whatever variant will be dominating each winter, again, just like the flu shot. And finally, the FDA is hoping to make the shots interchangeable so the brand wouldn't matter anymore. Okay, simpler. Why is the FDA considering this now? The idea is we're moving towards COVID becoming an endemic disease. It's not going away. COVID's going to sicken and kill many people for the foreseeable future. Mm. But unless some new, more dangerous version of the virus suddenly emerges, we might be settling into a more predictable coexistence with the virus. And the goal is to make vaccination, which is the major weapon for protecting ourselves, simpler and hopefully more appealing. This shift is based on the reality that at this point in the pandemic, most people have a lot of immunity, either from having gotten vaccinated and boosted or infected or both. What do immunologists think about this proposal? You know, many of the independent scientists I've talked to about this think simplifying the process makes a lot of sense and endorse the idea of regularly updating the vaccines. Here's uh, Deepta Bhattacharya. He's an immunologist at the University of Arizona. As far as the tools that we have right now, I think it just makes the most sense to, you know, plan to update each year as close as we can to the currently circulating variant. So I think all of these things that, you know, the FDA is considering make a lot of sense. But some people think people may still need to be boosted more often than just once a year. And other scientists question whether updating the boosters does make sense. They doubt the Omicron boosters are really much better and argue the virus is changing so fast that it's pointless to try to chase the latest variant. It might be better to invest in next generation vaccines like, you know, nasal spray vaccines to protect people against even catching the virus and to focus more on just getting more people vaccinated. So how would the FDA actually make this happen? 
An FDA advisory committee meets Thursday to recommend how best to proceed. And if the committee endorses the approach, the FDA would hash out the details and FDA advisors would meet again in the spring to pick the specific strains of the virus the new shot should target. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein. Thanks, Rob. You bet. This is NPR News. Coming up on Morning Edition, how loggers in Vermont who depend on having frozen ground are dealing with an unusually warm winter. And speaking of winter, up to four inches expected around Boston and Worcester today. The snow should start this afternoon. Near New Hampshire, we may see up to six inches. It may continue into the evening as temperatures dip into the mid-20s, then cloudy overnight. And tomorrow, those clouds gradually clear for a sunny day near 40 degrees and windy. It's 36 degrees in Boston at 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Eversource. Eversource knows the role energy plays in life for you and your family, and because of that understanding in times like these, they offer plans that can help this winter. To see if you qualify, you can visit Eversource.com. Now in business news, both state and Boston officials say they plan to keep moving forward with plans to rebuild the Mass Pike through Alston. That's despite the U.S. Department of Transportation rejecting a $1.2 billion grant request for the project. The Boston Globe reports the grant would have covered about 60 percent of the $2 billion price tag. The project would replace an aging viaduct carrying the pike over an old rail yard. It would also add a new train station to the area and create more room for green space and development. Ashmont Grill in Dorchester will close its doors for good next month. The restaurant first opened in 2005. Chef and owner Chris Douglas says he and his team are getting older and are ready for something new. The restaurant's last day will be sometime around Valentine's Day. It's 844. For NPR comes from this station and from the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. A warm winter in the Northeast is making it harder for loggers to do their jobs. Here's Henry Epp from our member station, Vermont Public Radio. 
Brian LaFoe is operating a machine called a forwarder in a patch of woods in East Burke, a small town in northeastern Vermont. He maneuvers a mechanized arm to pick up logs that his son-in-law felled, split, and piled along a road they cut through the forest. The heavy machinery has left ruts in the ground. Usually, that's not an issue at this time of year. In the wintertime, you got this wet ground. The ground gets froze up. Our machines go over it good. It, we don't do no damage. But on this sunny January morning, the temperature is starting to rise above freezing. And that means LaFoe can't run the forwarder much longer, or else he'll start to damage the soil. Winter is a crucial season for loggers like LaFoe. Typically, the frozen ground allows them to access sensitive wooded areas like this nearly every day. But this year, temperatures surged into the 50s in early January, and there's mud and ice where there should be deep snow. You shouldn't be able to see this ground. We should have snow right now. Life should be good. It should be zero degrees. We should be going. Instead, this job has taken LaFoe about two weeks longer than normal, and he'll have to do more work in the summer to repair the rutted logging trails. All told, he guesses the weather will increase his costs by about 17%. Luckily, he paid off all his equipment, like the forwarder, years ago. I guess a good way to put it, if I didn't own all this stuff, I probably wouldn't be doing it right now. I'd be retired. But I think this is shades of things to come. This is David Senio, the forester working with Brian LaFoe on this project. With climate change, winters are becoming shorter and more unpredictable in Vermont. Cutting down trees, which store carbon, could be adding to that climate impact. But Senio argues there's also a climate-positive effect of logging. Responsibly managing forests can make them healthier in the long run. But warming winters limit how often loggers can do that work. How do you make more productive days in a year? You don't. And Senio says all of Vermont's $1.4 billion forest products industry is impacted by the changing climate. Not just loggers, but sawmill operators, too. Goodridge Lumber in Albany, Vermont, relies on loggers like Brian LaFoe for the wood that's running through their sawmill. Workers feed white cedar logs along a spinning saw blade, cutting them into posts and boards. But because loggers haven't been able to harvest as much this year, owner Colleen Goodridge says her sawmill's store of fresh logs is running low. This year, we don't have that extra inventory that we had last year, so we are hoping that, you know, we have a strong next few weeks. Sales are good right now, Goodridge says, but it's not clear how long that will last. She's thinking of ways to diversify her business, like finding markets for lower-quality wood. Still, she's trying to be optimistic about the rest of the season. I'm hopeful. And, you know, we've had cold weather in April. We've had Aprils that hung on and hung on and hung on, so we just don't know. Goodridge has been in the lumber business for 49 years. Her sons are now co-owners. But she's worried about the future of this industry in Vermont. High costs and the unpredictability of a changing climate make it a tough business for young people to enter. They say to live is to experience change. (laughs) Well, you know, I guess we're living. Goodridge just hopes the logging industry can adapt to all this change. For NPR News, I'm Henry Epp in northern Vermont. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Fadel. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, Fed officials were unified in their approach to inflation last year. The Marketplace Morning Report tells us how that's changing.
And coming up at noon today, it's here and now, and Robin Young is in studio to tell us what they're going to be talking about today. Hi, Robin. Hi Very you. good to see you. Good to see you. And we are, of course, a terrible day with terrible news yeah. out of California. We're going to, of course, have the latest there. But also, yesterday was the, uh, would have been the 50th anniversary of the Roe v. Wade mm-hmm. decision. Of course, anti-Joyce uh, uh, activists celebrated their victory in the Supreme Court, effectively overturning Roe v. Wade. But yesterday, we also heard Vice President Kamala Harris say that uh, President Biden is going to be issuing a memorandum them aimed at protecting access to mifepristone. This is RU46. It's the abortion pill. The abortion pill. The where medical. people say this is where the debate is going. Exactly. I mean, our pharmacy is going to now be the new front. They're going to be the new abortion clinics because recently the FDA uh, uh, said that the they could now distribute the pill. You don't have to directly go to a doctor. So mm-hmm. there's concern that that's where some of the violence and some of the protests will move. We'll take a look at that. Also meet Rose Abramoff. She's the earth scientist who was fired from the Oak Ridge National Lab because they said they she violated their policies. What she's been doing is speaking out about climate change and her fear that people aren't listening to earth scientists. And she says, why is it that most of the scientists who work for these national labs are not allowed to say, you can people pay attention to, to our work? That's so interesting. Yeah. I didn't realize that that was continuing. Yeah. yeah. So we'll have that. Thank you, Robin. Thank you. That's here and now today at noon. It's 851. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bernadine Sun Megason and Tim O'Sullivan with Compass New England, helping clients navigate the evolving Massachusetts real estate market. More at homesbybernadine.com. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, it's Monday with Boston Mayor Michelle Wu. She's building a proposal to cap rent increases, making new investments in youth, and still battling over the next police contract. We'll ask her about all of it, and we'll ask her your questions, too. That's Radio Boston today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. We'll have rain throughout the morning. That'll change to snow by about mid-afternoon. It'll last into the evening, bringing up to four inches in Boston and Worcester. Right now it's 36 degrees in Boston at 852. New year, new IRS. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Paychex, where HR, insurance, benefits, and payroll integrate into one platform. Whether two or 2,000 employees, Paychex can help make HR simple for businesses and employees. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshore, in for David Brancaccio. The IRS begins accepting tax returns today, and it is promising improved services thanks to new cash from the Inflation Reduction Act. The IRS got $80 billion in new funding to, among other things, Go after wealthy tax dodgers. Marketplace's Nova Safo is here with more. Hi, Nova. Good morning. So how does the IRS plan uh, on making its services better this year? Well, the main thing the agency is pointing to, Sabria, is that they've used the first batch of money they've gotten from the Inflation Reduction Act to hire 5,000 telephone assisters. They're hoping this will make it easier for people to reach someone for help. And that was a huge problem last year. Get ready for some scary numbers. Only one in eight calls to the IRS customer service line last year got through. And hold times averaged 30 minutes. That's according to a report by the National Taxpayer Advocate, which is an independent organization within the IRS. So what is the rest of this $80 billion going to be used for? And why has that earned criticism from Republican lawmakers? Right. Uh, So Republicans say the IRS is going to hire tens of thousands of agents to target middle class Americans. That's not true. The reality is a lot more nuanced than that. 
The Congressional Research Service says enforcement will get nearly $46 billion, but the main focus is on higher income earners. That's people making $400,000 and above. It's estimated that the government is losing out on hundreds of billions of dollars in tax revenues from these higher earning individuals. Other areas of funding, tens of billions of dollars is going to modernize the technology the IRS uses, everything from phone systems to computer systems and cybersecurity, with the hope that they can make it easier to file taxes online, Sabri. All right, Marketplace's Nova Safo, thank you so much. You're welcome. A new report from Moody's Analytics finds that as the cost of rent rises faster than incomes, a typical household is now paying nearly a third of what it makes on rent. Many households, especially low-income Americans, are paying even more. Marketplace's Amy Scott has more. It's an old rule of thumb. Housing shouldn't cost more than about 30% of your paycheck. As of the end of last year, Moody says, the typical renter household was paying just that. In cities like New York, Miami, and Los Angeles, the percentage is even higher. Alex Herman at Harvard's Joint Center for Housing Studies says when people have to spend so much on rent, they have less to save for a down payment to buy a place. They're also spending less on food, less on school supplies, less on health care clothes. Really, it means less left over for all other essentials especially when so many of those essentials have gone up in price, too. Rents on new leases have been falling the past few months, and Herman says a big boost in apartment construction should bring some relief. I'm Amy Scott for Marketplace. All right, let's do the numbers. The FTSE in London is up four-tenths of a percent. Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures are also all up in the two to three-tenths percent range, with the Dow future up 83 points. The 10-year Treasury yield is at 3.538%. And the country's top 20 hedge funds earned $22.4 billion last year, according to LCH investment data. That's actually the least they've made since 2016. The year before, 2021, top hedge funds brought their investors more than $65 billion. That, however, is the top performers. All the other hedge funds, and there are about 4,000 of them in the U.S., suffered losses of 8.2% last year. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Vantage Score. Vantage Score credit scoring models are used by over 3,000 banks and fintechs, including nine of the top 10. Learn how Vantage Score helps expand financial inclusion by leveraging predictive analytics at VantageScore.com. On to the folks in the driver's seat of the U.S. economy, the Federal Reserve. There are 12 members of the Federal Open Market Committee, and they decide how to guide the U.S. economy to control inflation and promote employment. That usually means adjusting interest rates. And last year, all members were pretty much on the same page, in lockstep, in raising interest rates aggressively to fight inflation. But some cracks are appearing in that united front as the Fed prepares for another interest rate meeting next week. There are disagreements over the direction of the economy and how the Fed should respond. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer has more. The Fed's debate over how high interest rates should go at its next meeting spilled out in public last week. Two regional Fed bank presidents argued for a half a percentage point increase, like the one in December. Several others said they'd vote for a smaller quarter percentage point interest rate hike. In her own speech last Thursday, Fed Vice Chair Lael Brainerd acknowledged there are a range of views on some aspects of inflation, but she stressed the central bank isn't letting up. Inflation remains high and policy is going to need to remain sufficiently restrictive for some time to make sure it gets down 2% on a sustained basis. 
Brainerd did not say how much she thinks the central bank should raise rates at its next meeting. Fed watchers like former Fed economist Ken Kuttner are trying to make sense of it all. Kuttner worked at the Fed for more than 10 years and... I cannot recall a time when we have seen uh, such wide disagreement in terms of the appropriate monetary policy uh, setting. At last month's meeting, the Fed released officials' predictions for where interest rates are headed over the next few years. Kuttner says they range from almost 3% to more than 5%. Two percentage point spread in terms of uh, what people feel would be the appropriate policy setting, that's big. But it's perfectly normal to have disagreements now, says another former Fed economist, Ann Owen. The central bank is at a turning point, deciding when to stop pushing up interest rates and how long to keep them elevated. People are assessing the same conditions slightly differently. And I think that's a completely normal thing to happen at this kind of turning point. Interest rate decisions could get even tougher for Fed officials, says Derek Tang, an economist at L.H. Meyer. He also thinks disagreement is healthy. But if, say, the economy starts to stall and inflation is still above the central bank's 2 percent target, Tang says officials will have to ask themselves. Is it really worth slowing down the economy more? to get inflation back down to that 2% level when the labor market is starting to weaken and we might put people out of work. Tang says the Fed will have to decide how to balance its two jobs, keeping inflation running at 2% with full employment, meaning everyone who wants a job gets one. The debate over that could be even more intense. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genzer for Marketplace. And in New York, I'm Sabri Beneshore with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. Rain this morning, snow by mid-afternoon, accumulation of up to four inches in Boston and Worcester. High temperatures will be in the mid-30s. It may snow into the evening as temperatures fall to the mid-20s. It's 36 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock, and the BBC's next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu slash globe. 80 years ago, the film Casablanca hoped to convince Americans to support U.S. involvement in World War II. That message hit close to home for many of the movie's actors. Many of those actors were refugees in real life. That gives it a kind of authenticity. In a sense, they're playing themselves. I'm Elsa Chang. That story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 4 on WBUR. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.